Hello and welcome to Out of Office. My name's Johnny Caldor, and this is a podcast where I get to take walks with interesting people in media and find out what makes them tick. This is episode 11, which I recorded a few months ago with Alan Hunter, the ex-head of digital for The Times and The Sunday Times, where we walked around Alexandra Palace and talked about Alan's days at News UK, his shift from journalist to digital guru, how print and digital have converged over recent years, and how to build a world-class digital news media team. We also had a quick chat about something that comes up time and time again, that is, which is the better model for digital news media, periodical editions or continuous feeds, or possibly even something in between. Keep listening and you'll get Alan's views and some insight into how they've approached this at the Times. So here we go. So tell us, why don't we start with, where are we and why are we here? So we're in uh, Alexandra Palace Park in North London. Uh, and we're here because I live very close to here and <laughs> I feel like I spent a lot, I've spent a lot of the past 18 months walking oh. around here. Yes. First with uh, our late dog, oh, who no. sadly died a year ago, almost a, kind of in September. And uh, then I just carried on walking with his spirit. Oh, lovely. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so I, I kind of, I feel these paths and the view at the top of, of London is, uh, yeah, it's one of the things that kept me going during lockdown. I used to go out for very long walks every day. Is uh, he with us today? Huh? Is he with us somewhere? He's, he's always with us, yes. Standing around <laughs> over there. So I'm looking forward to the view as well, actually. Yeah. It's one of the perks of living in Ali Pali. Definitely. And yeah, I always remember my, my son when he was very young. Uh, one of the first things he said was, was we were driving Past. He obviously picked it up from me and my wife. He said, all of London. And you really can see all of London. Yeah, it's an amazing view. Actually, we should here. take a photo. So we're going to talk about, well, we've got lots to talk about, but I thought, God, it's quite a hill, this, isn't it? Yeah, I did warn you. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I like a hill. This is the biggest hill. No, it's good. Um, I thought we should start, well, gosh, it's been the majority of, you, of your career, right? Almost 20 years at News. Yes. So... Why do you take us on a little journey of where you started yeah, and, and sure. where you ended up and, and we can kind of pick off points as we go through? Yeah, sure. So I, yeah, I did nearly 23 years at uh, the Times and the Sunday Times and uh, I kind of divided it into two parts, which are pretty distinctive. The first part I would think of as kind of the journalistic yeah. and mostly print, to be honest, uh -huh. almost exclusively print part. And then later on, I moved into uh, digital uh, to become head of digital about eight years ago. And uh, that led me in a very different direction. Um, the difference between the early years and the late years was yeah. a huge contrast. And uh, I started off uh, actually doing the most printy of print jobs, which was as a I said as a Saturday sub on the Sunday Times sports section. Oh, cool. So I used to come in at 3.30 in the afternoon and be out by 8.30. So it was a five hour shift. Yeah. Uh, and we used to put together the sports section, which is a, a weekly miracle. And <laughs> there's to kind of, it is in, in what I think one of the most impressive conjuring tricks of, uh, of print news is pulling together these huge sections as they were. We, we did 
32 pages, most of which was live, as we called it, so match reports and so on. Yeah. And they got a load of people like me in to, uh, to, to edit the copy as, it was, as the events were happening. So uh, used to get half the, uh, half the match report at halftime, and then the, the instructions of the sports reports was to file on the whistle. Right. Which is quite an incredible <laughs> achievement for them. Uh, to get it all done in time and to actually know what's happened. Yeah. So yeah, I did that for a few years. And what, what years are we talking now? So that was in the, uh, the late 90s. 90s. Oh, late 90s, gotcha. Yeah, so, you know, we did have a website then, but frankly, it was put together in another building yeah. by people we'd never met. Right. And nor did we really know its purpose. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was very much out of sight, out, out of sight. Uh, out of mind at that time. But that, so, but that split between the print and the digital editorial teams all the way up, kind of, that, that stuck around for a long time, didn't it? Yeah. Actually, it kind of only really stopped uh, kind of definitively in 2016, yeah. when, uh, as we were putting together our new website and smartphone app to ensure that the newsrooms were fully focused on their, you know, the website and the digital products, we, we, we basically kind of got rid of the, uh, the online only reporters. Right. And the message to the newsroom is, this is your website. You have to, you know, there's no one else who's going to fill it up with copy. You're going to fill it up with copy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and take more interest in it, please. And they did, to be fair. Um, and you know, um, so when Mark Thompson left uh, New York Times recently, his big... I think the, the, the big message he put out was how he'd switched the newsroom from print to web to app completely on its head. And he went app to web to print uh -huh. was the kind of order of hierarchy or at least the order in which content was considered and, create, and, and created and published. Do yes. you think, so, do you, think uh, you got there? Is, was that ever an aspiration? Oh, of course. It was absolutely an aspiration. Yeah. It is a process. Uh, I would say... We were getting there, you know, we were laying the foundations. Yeah. Uh, it's not quite there yet. Uh, these are, you know, these are very well-established processes yeah. that have been going on for hundreds of years. Uh, and the muscle memory of doing print will kind of overwhelm often the, the, the new kind of processes. And, you know, the temptation to slip back into what you've always done is incredibly strong. Yes. Uh, and you know, I, I, know, I know that myself. I'm not kind of criticizing the people who work there, but it's very, very difficult to tell people that the way they've done things for, you know, decades is gonna to have to turn on its head. Yeah. Especially when they, they you know, they, they work for a very successful publication. Yep. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's difficult for people to get in terms of that switch from print to digital as being the main priority. You know, I, I found it very difficult myself because, you know, after sport, I spent another 10 or 12 years working in the newsroom in various different kind of print-based jobs where, you know, I didn't really think about digital at all. So I was, yeah. you know, I was a, I looked after the Irish and Scottish editions. I was deputy sports editor for a while. Uh, I was focus editor, which is the big news stories. And then uh, lastly, I was news review editor. And in those um, jobs, we had digital people on our desks, 
but they were the youngest, most inexperienced people <laughs> who wanted to be print journalists. Yeah. You know, they saw their kind of careers as getting into the paper and then moving on to being print journalists. Now, I hope we have kind of changed that to a degree where the aspiration will be to be digital journalists. Yes, or just than, a journalist. Well, just a journalist, yeah. Actually, indeed, all journalists will be digital journalists yeah. very soon indeed. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's the, the change is very difficult and you know, I found it <laughs> quite, uh, you know, the biggest challenge of my career was switching from having not really done much digital to being head of digital. Right. And how did you get that role then? That's, uh, well, that must have been an, an interesting journey. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I'd said to the two editors when they, uh, when they appointed me, I said, look, you do realise that I wouldn't say that digital is my kind of main point of expertise. Yeah. And they said very clearly, well, it's, you're not, it's not because you're digital, it's because you're a good journalist that you're getting this job. Yeah, yeah. And we want you to apply the same journalistic rigor to our digital products as we do to our print products. And uh, I realized very quickly that that would require me to learn a lot yeah. uh, from my team. And uh, yeah, it taught me a great lesson in digital, which is you can't know everything, you can't see everything and you have to kind of acknowledge others' expertise yes. and really listen to people who do know things, uh, which is kind of the opposite mindset than you have typically had in print newsrooms, shall we say, yeah. where the editor is right and the people below them are right, kind of if the editor agrees with as them and so on down agree, the chain. Right, yeah. And the, person, the youngest person at the bottom is the least right of all, whereas in digital, you know, a social media journalist will know much more about what's a good post on Twitter than the editor. Yes. Well, also, you get, you get the data immediately, yeah. so there's, there's no arguing either, right? So. There's always arguing, but, <laughs> but you do, you, yeah, you have, you have proof. I think what I've, I find interesting is you think back, well, not even think back, but you think about print, both in terms of a product, but also the workflows and the technology that supports those workflows, and it's incredibly complicated. Yeah. And actually, one of the beauty, beautiful things of digital is it kind of releases you from a lot of that complexity yeah. doesn't it yeah yeah absolutely i mean the, the whenever we were talking about building new uh content management systems the uh the, the kind of the thing that everyone used to come back with is well in print we can have people working on a headline at the same time as someone's working on the caption and someone's working on the text and yes bringing this whole kind of magic show together yes and that, that is really difficult. I mean, you'll know much more about this than me, but really difficult to replicate. And is And why... almost unnecessary though yeah, sometimes, yeah, totally. right? And it's, it's kind of why I think um, often people get really mired in the details of building their new CMS. Absolutely. Because they're trying to accommodate too many yeah. uh, different, different requirements that actually are just kind of requirements from the olden days, if you like, that they think feel should be ported over to digital. Yeah. I, I completely agree. There's a lot of that around. I mean, that's why starting afresh sometimes can be so helpful. Yeah. Uh, we're just working with Matt Kelly at the moment on the New European, and he's come... Well, he started afresh twice, right? He started the New Euro European from nothing, but he started it on a whole bunch of existing editorial systems that Archant use. And then he bought, he bought the paper from Archant and he set it, he set it up uh, himself with a bunch of investors, really cool investors actually, um, and he started afresh. So we've got a brand new CMS, 
new app. At the moment, he's still having to use the Arch Antetidoro systems, but I suspect that won't be for long. Yeah. And he'll just have a nice yeah. blank sheet of paper, and I think it's, it's so liberating for him. Yeah, I think there's definitely a... It's definitely a problem that most news companies face, that they are... They have these long-established systems to produce a print newspaper, and actually, now they have equally long-established systems to produce the digital, uh, whether it's editions or a rolling model, to produce them, yeah. which are often based on ways people thought about the old systems yeah. kind of 10, 15 years ago. And so now they have these, these massive, great beasts with many different plugins and kind of uh, riot workarounds that aren't great for the, the people working there. Yeah. But the idea of replacing it all is almost too much to kind of think about. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's going to take, you know, it's like, okay, well, it's going to take you three years. Unless you are able to start from the very minimum to get the additions out, they'll get the, the, the kind of website built. And that's very, very difficult to do. So just actually something you just said there reminded me of a question I wanted to ask you about, which is about the relationship between digital editions and live content, but particularly on websites as well as apps. I think there's, there's, you know, there was a general assumption, particularly 10 years ago, that all apps are edition-based and all websites are kind of rolling news-based. And you guys I kind of famously challenged that a few years ago. So can you just take me through yeah, sure. the thinking that drove that? So this came about when, essentially, when I took over as uh, head of digital at the end of 2013, uh, the, kind of the, the, the message was, look, our, our smartphone app and our website uh, are not performing well. People really didn't like them. Uh, and then the usage numbers were very low. And this was in contrast to our tablet app, which was a edition model, which had been uh, launched in 2010 with the uh, iPad. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, was enormously successful and, and did really boost the number of subscribers in the first year uh, that we were doing paid content. Yeah. And, uh, so the question was, okay, the question, the exam question like is, how can you make the website and smartphone match the tablet app? And at the time it was considered impossible. It was like, well, the tablet app is a beautiful addition. People love it. They spend more than an hour with it every day. And it cost a lot of money to produce every night yeah. though, didn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. You had to have a team. a team. It was, it was manually created. It was like an artisanal product. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, which we kind of winnowed away over the years yeah. and uh, standardized it as much as possible um, without people noticing, which was interesting. Yeah. But um, so we, we went to this project and it's interesting because uh, when we launched the editions on website and app, everyone said, oh, you know, you're just copying old news, newspaper ideas, old print ideas and putting them into digital where they just don't belong. And actually it was the most digital project uh, we kind of ever did because we really started from with the users yeah. and we talked to them and said, okay, what do, you, what do you like about what we do? What do you need from us? What kind of, um, what do you want us to do in the future? And, uh, and we looked at kind of what they, uh, you know, what their behavior was and we said, okay, right, how can we, how can we give them something that makes them kind of really engage more with our products, yeah. the, the website and the smartphone app? And the answers they gave us were really clear. They said, look, I, I don't come to you to keep up to date on things, as in what's happened right now. Yeah. I want to know the context to stories. From, you know, from the Times, they expect to get authoritative reporting and great analysis and opinion. 
And that was far more, to important, far more important to them than knowing what had just happened because that's kind of everywhere. Yep. So especially now, even more than five years ago, the news is a, a breaking news is a commodity. Right. It's produced by hundreds of people and they push out push notifications. And so you know what's happened immediately uh, if you're looking at your phone and often it will beep to, to tell you or, or these days your watch as well. Yeah. And just an example, the other day when uh, the US rescinded its travel ban on Brits who's got double vaccine, double vaccines, yes, hooray. I've um, got three flights already actually right. last night. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's a gold rush. And the, um, so when, when, that, when that news broke, I got six push notifications telling me that same news. Yeah. And you know, which one did I click on? The one that was first. So if you're gonna do breaking news, you, you always have to be first. Um, and it's expensive and you have to direct your whole organization to doing it um, to really get that habit of people coming to you rather than just going to the people who chanced across it. And did any of them come from the Times? Uh, no. Good. So, um, <laughs> for various reasons, yeah. But um, so, so, so essentially we, we kind of, we looked at what the readers were telling us and they were saying, okay, well, we, we want, you know, we, we kind of want a distilled version of what's important um, today. And actually most of them said they'd be content to read it first thing in the morning and then put it behind them and then come back the next morning for the next edition, which really is a traditional newspaper model, which shows that yep. you know, the newspaper market was very mature and really served to meet people's needs. Yep. Um, but we thought this was, you know, this was probably a good way of serving our existing readers but not perhaps the new generation of people who um, are used to the rolling news and we had to operate in an environment where there was rolling news. And so we, we decided to do the main edition or the morning edition, publish it at midnight, uh, which was the, the basis of what was in the, the newspaper that day. Yeah. But then updated at 9 a.m., where typically you get stock market announcements right. uh, and news from the Far East. And then at midday when usually there'd been some political developments in the morning which uh, were worth reporting and then at 5 p.m which was really the aim was to kind of hit the uh, evening rush hour yeah. so that people have something to read on the train or the bus mm -hmm. uh, or wherever or at home indeed and um you know when we launched it people said this is mad why are you, why are you doing this this isn't what the internet allows because a number of people said well you know the the means of production allow you to publish all the time, so why don't you publish all the time? Yep. And that was actually a very producer-led idea rather than the user-led idea, which is, well, I want my news here. I don't want to feel overwhelmed. I want you to pick out what's important for me yes. and tell me at certain times of the day. Um, and it's worth adding, we didn't pick those times of day out of a hat. Um, we picked them because those were the times where we had previously had peaks. So even when we were doing breaking news, there were distinct peaks at... Uh, 7 a.m. was the morning peak. Then there was a little bump at 9, big bump at 12, and a little nascent one at 5, which over the years we grew quite dramatically. Yep. So it was all about you know, meeting the user's habits of reading news, which are very, very different from you know, journalists and news executives' habits of reading news. You know, we tend to be news obsessives, always kind of looking for what's, what's happening next, uh, you know, what's new. Um, you know, quite often you go in to see a senior editor and they say, okay, what's new? What's happening? 
and you're supposed to keep up with the news. Yeah. Uh, most people don't do this. Uh, you know, news is kind of something that is more peripheral in their lives, not less important, but you know, it, it's kind of, they want to have a certain time for it and use that time well. And that was the offer we were giving them. And, you know, in the first, first year, you know, we, you know, people were a bit nervous about it, um, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but in the first year, we saw the, the engagement increase dramatically. So the, the number of articles being read on the um, website, the smartphone app, went up by four times in the first year. And we thought, okay, we're onto something. Articles per user or articles? Articles per user. Right. And then, uh, you know, when, when we launched it, the, the smartphone app was getting somewhere around kind of 35, 40,000 uh, uh, unique visitors a day. And now it's getting uh, 120,000. Yeah. So the numbers have kind of went up dramatically. It was clearly meeting a need. In fact, it overtook the tablet app, which would have considered impossible when we, uh, when we launched. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was counterintuitive in journalistic terms, but in user terms, it was really giving them what they wanted. And I actually, you know, I think, you know, the, the model has been eroded slightly over the years, and there, there is kind of a, a desire to do more breaking news. Um, I guess it's the odd story that you just don't want to be seen not to be covering. The question when we were doing it was always, well, what happens uh, when the Queen dies? Yeah. And the answer was, of course, we will break the edition structure when the Queen dies and get the story up quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, yes. for events of real importance. But the, the truth was, when we did that, um, we never saw great traffic on those stories. We always saw best traffic the next day. So when there's those series of terror attacks in London uh, a couple of years ago. Well, there's no, probably three or four years now. I kind of, COVID makes me confused. Um, on the day, obviously we would report it live. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, one of the ones, the, the, the one where the, uh, the terrorists shot the policeman in Westminster, uh, in the grounds of the Palace of Westminster, we had some unique footage from one of our reporters and we put that up really, really quickly. And yet still the majority of the traffic and the engagement was the next day yeah it's like we were what i usually say we were a day two publisher i so, guess it's it, it's having the maturity to to not be too concerned about short-term eyeballs because you know that actually in the long run it's going to pay off yeah for your for your subscribers do you think actually is there something particular to this being a subscription product that makes the edition-based model work better or do you think this is just this should just be a general principle no I, th I think there are room for different models and i think actually if you're looking for you know you're looking to charge people and if you're going to charge people you have to offer something different from what is out there yeah. uh, in the market because otherwise people go well i can get this for free it's a simple equation you know it might not be quite as good but what you can get from the bbc you might say is good enough and it's like, okay I'll, re I'll read that instead yeah so i think being a subscription model, you really, being a subscriber publication, you really have to be distinctive. Um, and I think that, you know, that goes for everyone. Uh, and I think that's going to be a real issue in the, in the years coming forward for general interest news publications. Because you have, you have more and more specialist titles um, kind of picking off the areas 
that they have traditionally kind of seen good ad revenue from in print, that they see good engagement from, um, but now you have people going much deeper. So the, the whole kind of story of general news is that it's a, it's a, an, uh, an inch deep but a mile wide. Uh -huh. And now I think you're getting a lot more publications that are an inch wide but a mile deep. Yeah. It's catering for specialist interests. So you look at the likes of The Athletic in uh, football uh, and American sports as well. So you look at The, the Athletic, uh, which covers football in the UK and obviously American sports yeah. uh, in the States. Now, they go into intense detail on every single team in the Premier League. They have a reporter, for, at least one reporter for every single team. Right. Their coverage is necessarily going to be more in-depth, you know, and, you know, without, you know, the quality is generally very high. And for, if you're, say, a fan of Tottenham, as I am, you're going to get a lot more every day out of The Athletic than you will out of general interest news publishers. Yeah. Yeah. And if that's repeated over all the areas of kind of your interest, that's starting to become a problem for general interest mm -hmm. publishers. Now, I think there are ways they can succeed, which is to have, you know, a real kind of focus on what they are, what user need they are fulfilling, um, and how they package that and how they signal to people that they've, you know, they've, they are up to date and they don't need to hunt around for anything more because this is the publication I only, this is the only publication I need to read. Yeah. But still, that is a really difficult thing to do when you have people much more used to picking and choosing news. Previously, you would buy one newspaper. You would go and buy The Times without seeing what was in it. You just know that they had news, they had comment, they had foreign news, they had business news, they had a features section, they had arts, and they had sport. You'd know there'd be something good in it. Now, you can go and search for individual stories and individual topics and you have the whole of the internet to play with now some of it will be paid for but most of it is still free and that makes it really difficult but you've, you've just highlighted another challenge which dom young would would say no one is addressing which is a dom young of axe eight fame yes, who we yes. both used to work with which is in the olden days you could pick up a copy of the times and it would cost you you know pound two pounds depending on the year um and that's your commitment and that's fine. You can't do that today. How do you spend two pounds on the Times? It's impossible, right? So how do you... Well, you, you could argue that you spend a lot less than that if you get a subscription, but it's a long-term commitment. It is a commitment. Yeah. And obviously, it's working as a business model, but there does seem to be a huge untapped audience who would pay a bit but won't pay a lot for, as you say, all of these publishers' content, whether it's The Economist or The Spectator or The Times or Motorsport. Do you... I mean, do you think... Do you think someone's got that right? Do you think there's a company who's offering either readers or publishers a way to tap into that market, which currently is just sitting there? So I think, you know, people have been talking about uh, micropayments. Yeah. That's what you're describing, obviously, for quite a long time. But I think the problem has been is they've been, there's been quite a lot of friction in them for the, for the user. They've yeah. had to set up an account and... Uh, you know, then kind of add to their wallet and and so on, and, and then make, and they they pay only in the certain currencies and so on. I think once you can remove the friction, which will inevitably happen, but I mean, then Apple I think, and Google kind of do that, right? You can spend fifty nine p at yeah. a time on Apple. Yeah, yeah. So the models there, 
It's, right. uh, there's also a matter of uh, enough publishers coalescing around a single uh, micropayments provider, I think is, is, is one of the issues. That you as a customer do not want to have, uh, you know, I'm using their names because they're real companies, Axate on one hand and then Few Cents, which is another micropayments company on another. You want to have just one, really. You do, yeah. Uh, and that's, that's tricky, but I think ultimately uh, there'll probably be different providers specialising in different areas. But it's, yeah, it's true. Most, most people don't pay for news. Because in the UK... But they I used think, to. Gosh, yeah, I mean, yeah. you have to dial the clock back, what, 20 years, and everybody well, paid yeah, exactly. for news. And that was, if you like, the, the, <laughs> the, the big mistake of the news industry yes, when, yes. when the internet came along was thinking that everything should be free. You know, it wasn't... <laughs> yeah, It yeah. wasn't only the we news industry, it but it was a terrible, terrible mistake. That's for sure. Um, but even... So let's, let's assume... Sorry, I mean, I'm... Yeah, I don't want to flog the micropayment horse too much because... And particularly now... It's kind of a swear word, isn't it? I think Dom likes to use the word casual payments or something mm -hmm. like that. But, you know, single edition purchases were a thing. Yes. Are a thing. We, we find our publishers less and less interested in, in selling a single edition through an app store, even though there's no friction at all. I mean, Apple just deal with that for you or Google just deal yeah. with that for you. So it's, it's, I think it's kind of a perfect scenario where all that friction has been taken away and yet still there's something not quite working, right? There is, there is that, and this is, a, this is a fear that stalks all these new subscription businesses, which are, if you think about it, are all pretty new to this. They haven't kind of, you know, the, the, in the UK, the, the oldest ones are 10, 15 years old in terms of subscriptions. Yeah. They haven't lived through subscriptions for long enough in a way to work out that actually this is not a threat to their subscription business. And that basically, if you have someone who's loyal enough to be spending 20, five, 26 pounds a month, they're very unlikely to, to go through the effort of downgrading and paying for articles on an individual level. Yeah. And I think once people get over that fear and see, see it working, which I understand uh, from actually talking to people at FewSense in Asia, they're getting a lot, of, uh, a lot of people where they're much more used to small payments for uh, story, well, for, for different products. Uh, it's it's working in news to a degree, yeah. especially with people from uh, out from uh, from different countries. So there's a lot of cross-border kind of uh, readership of different um, publications, and they are finding um, that people don't want to subscribe. Of course, why would you subscribe to a foreign publication? Yeah. Um, unless it was really really good uh, and uh, indispensable to you, but they will pay for single articles. So. I think it's, you know, clearly there are, you know, at the moment, mostly, you know, you have, a, you have subscription models where people pay a, you know, a recurring fee and you have advertising uh, as ways to monetize digital, digital news content. Clearly there are other ways of doing yeah, it. Yeah. And I think they're going to emerge in the next, uh, next few years. And I think actually it's quite, quite exciting. And um, I think it requires, more open-mindedness and more kind of desire to try things. Yeah, you've got and, to try stuff out. And also not be too afraid that it's going to destroy your business because it won't. Yeah. Um, very few companies have destroyed their businesses like, like that. Well, particularly destroying your business by being successful because that's yeah. the fear. It'll be too successful. I yeah, mean, we, yeah. yeah we, we see that a lot, actually. I do, yeah, I think the micropayment one for me, 
is it's every time you ask someone, do you want to spend some money? I think that's the problem. If you can ask them as few times as possible. Yeah. But I've got to say, in particular, well, Ben Evans is a great one. Ben, half of Ben's links go to New York Times or Wall Street Journal, both of which yeah. I don't have subscriptions for, so I never get very far. And I'm just thinking, this is a perfect example where I would just like to um, get through for a little while, a day yeah. or a week yeah. or something like that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we'll, we'll get there, but it probably won't be quite how we envisage no, it right no, now. No. As all these, yeah, these, yeah, the perfect models are never perfect. <laughs> no. So how do, how do you feel about news media right now? Do you feel optimistic about the future? So, yes, uh, but I think there are real challenges ahead. I mean, I think, I think 10 years ago, people really couldn't see how it was going to work out and whether it had, there was a sustainable model for news in digital. Yeah. You know, if you think it's just a bit over 10 years ago, but in 2009, Carlos Slim had to bail out the New York Times. So it really was the failing New York Times. Yeah. Uh, and yet from that kind of moment, they coalesced and worked out kind of uh, how to drive subscriptions. And they really have done so to amazing success. And, you know, they are the, the kind of the, the shiny example of this. But there are many, you know, many, many other publishers have moved into subscriptions now. And I think it's, you know, it is very interesting that in their marketing, the thing The Guardian push now is subscription. You know, everyone is pushing subscriptions in one yes. way or another. Yes. So, and, you know, if you just look at the case of The, the Times, you know, 2009, uh, The Times made a, a 70 million pound loss, or The Times titles, The, the Times and The Sunday Times, which obviously are separate newspapers but yeah. are really one entity uh, financially yeah. and um, they made a 70 million pound loss now now they're in a pretty healthy profit which is an incredible turnaround um, well pretty much for their first time in history yeah yeah <laughs> it's an amazing feat yeah so you've got people making money out of digital who really weren't 10 years ago yeah however I think there are big challenges ahead now I think it's very interesting that the interest that Google and Facebook have shown in news, backed up by money in the past year or so, um, following in from Apple, uh, where they are creating news products and paying publishers for content, which is something that uh, Rupert Murdoch and Robert Thompson from News Corp have talked about for a long time, of getting a kind of a fair return for, um, for their journalism. Now, I think it's quite tricky in a way because Google, Facebook and Apple have the, obviously have the reach um, to become real competitors to news publishers. So they're going to be the primary source of news for people. So, you know, will you go to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal to read those articles? Or will you go to Apple and Google where likely because of their, their desire to remove friction, they will have make it kind of free to you, if you like. Um, well, that's so up to the New York Times and, and News Corp not to, not to just give in, isn't it? I well, mean, although they have, you know, deals have been signed with um, many of these people, and I'm sure more will follow. I think they're interesting deals, though, aren't they? So if you think about the Wall Street Journal deal where, you know, Apple can say that you've got the whole Wall Street Journal, but you haven't really. You've got selected stories from the Wall Street Journal 
that you can see and then the others are all hidden behind search and yes yes but so, so 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 the wall street journal's subscriptions team can handle a call coming in to cancel the subscription very quickly by saying well hang on hang on let's just tell you what you're missing out on if you move away yeah i mean but but ultimately you know that's quite a challenging kind of conversation it's like oh no no you haven't got everything there yeah got, well people might say well i've got i've got enough i've got exactly what i need and okay. that's the that's the thing is that i think more and more these places will be where people go for their their hit of news and they will think they've read everything they're not going to think oh yeah but that that one article in the companies and markets section wasn't in the wasn't in apple news so that's tricky. It becomes really tricky. But, but I think actually this quite neatly answers the whole debate we were having before around, you know, the commodity free stuff and, and the, the high value stuff and the stuff that will, people are willing to pay a subscription for. So if only, whatever it is, 5% of your readers will pay for a subscription, maybe Apple and Google are a good way to monetize a good yes. portion of the other 95%. Yeah, potentially. Although you wonder you know what what effect in the longer run this will have on the growth rates of the core subscription especially you have generations who are coming up who've yeah who don't know these products yeah you know i have a i had a friend who liked to wind me up who was to say well his son who's 20 now he said he's he's no idea what the times is he's never seen it well that's bizarre and no, get they get it delivered. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So, God. but he says his son just not. You know, that's not where he gets his news. They get you get a whole generation of people who have never really read newspapers. Yeah. Who don't know the product. Who just know links and so on. And that becomes really difficult to sell them a subscription. And you can't see people reading it on the tube anymore either. Which no, no. So, I think for general interest publishers, as I said before, it is difficult. Yeah. Uh, for niche publishers, I think it's great. You know, they have a real opportunity now to... Yes. To, um, sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> they have a real opportunity to, uh, um, to develop really good businesses. And, you know, I think you've seen more and more of them come through in the last couple of years, uh, building on, you know, if you look at what Politico did, uh, you've had Axios come up, obviously not in the last two years, but further back than that. Uh, and now Puck, which is another US-based political publication. So I think people are realizing that if you can really hit a niche audience, you can, you can monetize them well, because they are super fans, they are engaged. Yeah. And they'll probably pay quite a decent price. I mean, we see that, you know, you look at, well, I, you know, ones I mentioned before, people like The Spectator, New Statesman, yep. The Economist, Motorsport, The Week, well, the week's, I guess, not niche, but still, it's a very specific product. Yeah. And they're all flying. I mean, they're doing so well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and have done so for the last, you know, five years consistently amongst all of these other, you know, uh, stories of woe. So, okay, I've got a question for you. We've talked a bit about national news media and niche publishing. What about regional media? If you were put in the driving seats of a <laughs> regional publisher, NewsQuest, for example. Yeah. What would you do right now if you had carte blanche to redesign the business? So I think it's really difficult for them, of course, because they were ad businesses and then that suddenly disappeared. Yeah. Uh, I think in such extremists, the thing to do is to be bold and 
if you could find someone to invest in you and really invest in local news journalism with uh, paid content because it is the ultimate in um, kind of distinctive content that matters to individuals. So if there were a, a local site for Alexander Palace, we're back in the park now, yeah. if there were a, a, a local news um, site around here, I would definitely pay for it because it's local news that means something to me. How and much would you pay? I'd pay, uh, you know, probably, probably uh, you know, a quid a week, maybe. Yeah? I mean, that's a decent that's, that's all right. investment there. And I think there are lots of people who've made it work abroad. Uh, Am Media is a very innovative firm in Norway, uh, where it's such a huge country with such distances, and they have tiny settlements that have one journalist, they draw content from a kind of local pool, from a kind of national pool as well, but they do heavily do local content. They run videos of their local football team. They run videos of town council meetings. So I think there is, you know, going really local, there is an opportunity. I don't know some people are trying this and working out what is the future for local news. It is difficult because you've got to get someone to invest in it and believe in it. Um, but it, it has been working in different places. I, mean, I remember talking to one of our colleagues in, from News Corp in Australia who said they found that people were buying subscriptions for local free sheets. So they were free in print, but people would pay to read in digital. Right. Which is remarkable. So, Which st stylists have been doing, haven't they, for the last year or so as well, actually. They've had a digital subscription yeah. since they uh, can get the print product out to people yeah. properly. So I think, you know, I... I don't doubt that it's very, very difficult for local news. And to get the numbers right is tough. Um, I think they just have to accept that the, you know, advertising has gone elsewhere. You know, they can help showcase local businesses in a different way, maybe with paid content and, and the likes. But, uh, yeah, getting people to pay for the kind of... People will pay for the information they find valuable. And... It has been shown that people find local information really valuable because it matters to them. Well, I think local teams in particular, I think there's a potential yeah. seam there for, for paid content. Um, yeah, it's a tough one. Okay, so we've talked about um, the product a lot, mm -hmm. a little bit about technology. Let's talk about people quickly mm -hmm. as we, I think we're heading slowly towards the pub, are we? We are, we Good. are. Um, yeah, so tell me about how you, how you pulled the team together, because you, you were talking earlier about, you know, the difference between, I guess, digital natives and more traditional journalists. Yeah. You were obviously trying to build quite a different sort of team. Yeah, so it was, um, it was really interesting me taking over this digital thing where, as I, as I said earlier, I really didn't know that much about digital, and I had to learn from people who had already been recruited, to be fair, and were experts. Um, you know, we had a social media team back then, they weren't called an audience team yet. Uh, we had a few developers and a few um, people who, who did news development. So their job was to have big ideas about news. And I, I basically sat and listened to them for a while. And it became really clear to me that these guys had sat and thought about journalism and its future much more than a lot of senior people, which is really interesting uh -huh. because, you know, often the more senior people are thinking about getting out tomorrow's edition and, yeah. you know, what kind of, you know, stories look like. These guys were thinking about the whole kind of horizon of digital news and how it was working. And 
and they looked at what others were doing and helped us compare things. And I learned an awful lot from the team and I thought we need more of these people. So I spent the whole of my seven years in a job kind of hiring, really. We hired a lot of people. Um, the team went from about you know, 20, 20 to 30 to about 50 over my time. And we spent a long time on the, the hiring process. And our, you know, most kind of uh, hires in national newspaper groups are from rivals. So from the Telegraph and, and the Times' case or the, the, the Mail or sometimes even from the Guardian, yeah. um, although less often. And we would go out of our way to hire people who weren't from these backgrounds. So uh, among the places we hired, we hired from MSN early on. Um, and that was someone who we brought in to do build interactives in the website and apps. And he kind of went on and grew a team of nine people. And we hired people from that team from, uh, from trade unions um, who just had shown a great uh, kind of data. The grass will be less crunchy. Yes, a great kind of great understanding of data and how it, uh, how it worked. Yep. We also hired a postdoctoral physicist. Um, she had never worked in journalism before, had worked in the press office in, uh, in Italy, where she comes from, mm -hmm. but proved to be brilliant, absolutely brilliant, could see stories in a different way to traditional journalists. And the whole idea was getting in people, if you like, I wouldn't say they were, they were kind of uh, freaks and weirdos like Dominic Cummings said, but they were people of, of his people he wanted to hire, but they were different people yep. from different backgrounds to your standard journalist. Right. And it made a huge difference. They, you know, they, they produced really good work. I kept learning an awful lot from them. But this is not an integrated team at this point, though. This so, is a completely separate... This is a separate team. I mean, we realised that very quickly that you couldn't ask, uh, you know, traditional print journalists to do everything digital. It just wasn't in their skill set and it wasn't worth us trying to train them. We trained some of them, yeah. but mostly we said, look, you get on with doing what you do well, which is reporting. Yeah. And we'll find people to kind of uh, make it sing digitally. Yeah, tell the story and, in a different, a different way. You know, I think this is something that we'll have to carry on for a few years. Over time, uh, you'll have people coming into journalism who know how to build charts, who know how to do a video, who know how to do social posts. Um, who know how to read the data on their stories to know what they should do next time. You know, right there, who know also, right, how to write SEO headlines. It's okay, well, apart from the latter, it's okay for all of those, for all those other things to be pretty much specialist yep. um, uh, capabilities, right? I mean, if you're brilliant at designing infographics, then that's very different yeah. from reporting. Or... Yeah, yeah. But, you know, they're, they're coming from those, the, the kind of, uh, the, the, uh, the alchemy of bringing those things all together. Yeah. If you have one person who can do that, obviously it's much more efficient. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but if you can get those teams to work together really well, that's good. So what we decided was we weren't going to get every reporter to write their own headlines and do video and so on. We would we'd have teams of specialists yeah, yeah. in the areas that were most kind of uh, significant in driving engagement amongst our readers. And we carried on with that. And that, that worked really well, I thought. And, you know, the team became really good advocates for digital in the newsroom they spent a lot of time kind of helping people do tasks which they could quite reasonably have said i don't do that but they just do things like like can say the data team who were experts in kind of computational reporting so they would pour over massive data sets and pull out stories yeah they were often asked 
can you help me with this in Excel by reporters? And they did it kind of with <laughs> sometimes through gritted teeth, but they did it. And it was a, you know, I thought for, we, we really moved things forward. We did massive training programs where we delivered 24 courses uh, on everything from how to write an SEO headline, how to tweet, right. um, why everything is not a podcast was my favorite title of a course. Would you share that outside the paper? <laughs> I mean, I mean, not to me right now, but just that seems the sort of thing that this that would be for the good of the industry. What training courses? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think you know. Well, obviously, I, I don't work there anymore. Yeah. <laughs> That's for someone else. But I think you know there are there are lots of people who do this kind of training now. I think there's some people who do it for 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 profit as well. Yeah. But um, it took a lot of time. Yeah. But it was good, and you know, you, you got we got a lot of people. I think we, um, you know, there's a probably. Kind of, there's a few hundred journalists work for the Times. We, we ended up giving the courses to, I think, something like 2,000 individual course, individual attendees right. at the various courses over a couple of years. Yeah. So we got through a lot of people, and I, I, I hope we increased the digital knowledge, which was, you know, in a long-term transformation. And I think these transformations necessarily take a long time. Yes, yes. Uh, I hope that, you know, we worked well and did a good job of that. So do you think... Well, sorry, no, I'll put it slightly differently. I think you look at, again, you know, News Corp, Telegraph, The Guardian, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, whatever. Um, massive luxury in terms of money, people, resources. And there's a hell of a lot of publishers out there who don't have anything like the scale or the, or the resources. How would you, if you were building a digital team on a much, much smaller scale, where would you focus your effort, the expertise, who, who would be the, the kind of the more important people to hire? Well, I think it depends what your, what you discover from the data that your users need. Is, is your, what is your kind of, what's the problem you're trying to solve with this team? Mm -hmm. Is it getting more people to see your fantastic content? Well, then that's an audience team to go out and find readers. Is it the, that your content actually looks a bit flat or your readers tell you it looks a bit flat and is not really worth paying for? Well, then probably it's a kind of digital storytelling team you need to build. So every time you say team, I'm thinking person. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it, it might just be a person. In fact, <laughs> yeah. our, what we called the digital storytelling team started out with one person right. and then right. grew to nine people. Yeah. So you start out with one person, you see what they can do, you see what the results are yeah. and build from that. And I, I think that's the, that's the only way you can do it. There's no kind of, um, you know, one size fits all approach. And this is what you need of a, an audience team because you know yeah we used to look at uh, other companies within the, the 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 news corp group and think oh my god they've got untold resources and of course everyone has different resources in different places yes, but you know and yes. depending on the market and the, the size of the business so you know there are best practices you can follow and that yeah. can be done by one person or it can be done by by 10 people yeah i mean i think that's where we see because we work with quite a mix of, you know, big tier one national publishers and very, very small teams with three, four or five people in them. And yeah. I think that's where a lot of publishers, smaller publishers struggle because they don't, they, they just don't know where they need to focus their yeah. effort or who they need to be hiring. And a lot of these, I think a lot of people are coming out of a print background, starting afresh, you know. I think, and there's always the tendency to pick the, the shiniest, newest thing. Because you're never, you're, you're rarely gonna get shouted down in a, in a meeting if you say, 
if you're you know, in a meeting of people who are perhaps not totally okay with digital, but know that digital is important. If you say, right, I think we should really focus on TikTok because it's the coming thing and lots of Gen Zs use it and so on. It's like, well, okay, but uh, I don't think you're going to get many kind of new subscribers from there or many new readers because most people who use it are teenagers. Yes. So I think, you know, it, it, it really pays to take a bit of time, see what your, you know, what your readers are telling you by their habits, by the, you know, by the data. You know, that's one of the things that, um, you know, my team at the Times and the Sunday Times really lived on was data. And if you think of news publications, uh, in the past they had like three data points. One was uh, the number of print sales, the circulation. Yeah. Two was the ad revenue. Yeah. And three, the other data point was, was the editor happy? <laughs> and apart from that, there's no data at all. <laughs> you know, people say, oh, the phones were ringing off the hook on the news desk about some story. And you'd ask, well, how many calls? And it'd be like, well, you know, two. And it, there was no kind of feedback. And now you have data on every single yes. conceivable bit of uh, kind of reader activity. So you can work out what is resonating with them and what you need to do to kind of improve that content and focus your efforts there. And I, mean, I think I would advise you know, smaller publishers with less deep pockets to just focus on a f doing a few things really, really well, not trying to do everything. Mm. It doesn't matter that you don't have a TikTok strategy. Who yeah. does have a good TikTok strategy? <coughs> I have no idea. I'm just using it because I remember. <laughs> no, but I, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm interested. Do, what, what was the, the Times and Sunday Times TikTok strategy? Uh, I'll be honest, we were, we didn't have one because... Very simple reason. We, we looked at TikTok and looked at its user base, yeah. um, which is predominantly kids in their teens, yeah. and thought they are not going to be time subscribers anytime soon. We should instead focus on the areas where we really do have potential time subscribers. And to be honest, that is primarily Facebook and Twitter for us. We, did, we, we used to do a lot better on Twitter than most people. Um, so what would be the point of investing a lot of time in TikTok where the person doing that could be working on Twitter to have a much more kind of demonstrable effect on the business? You know, I don't, you know, TikTok may come and go and be replaced by, yeah. you know, Instagram may be able to swallow it whole at some point as mm -hmm. they seem to do with others. So we can afford to have a wait and see strategy on that. Yeah. Um, or we could have afforded to. We, we, well, we decided to have a wait and see strategy on that. Can we talk a bit about audio? Yes. So again, the, the ongoing debate around whether audio should be completely free or some of it should be free, some of it should be paid. It should be used as an acquisition tool. It should be used as a retention tool. What's the Time Sunday Times take? Um, well, I don't, to be honest, I, I'm not sure what their latest thinking is. I know what my feeling is, which yeah. is that it is a great audience development tool. Um, and that you are often reaching people who don't know your brand. And we found that at uh, the Times with our Stories of Our Times podcast, where the audience was dramatically younger and dramatically more female than the traditional Times audience. It was, a great, it was a way of introducing them to the brand. So this was free, obviously. It was free. Do you have paid audio content? Uh, Did you? Sorry. We didn't, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I think it's very difficult to charge for podcasts. 
um, because there are so many podcasts, so many brilliant podcasts that are free. How are you going to, again, what is, what are you going to do that is so distinctive that people will pay for it, that they can't get free elsewhere? It's interesting though, isn't it? Where, so if you take Audible, you know, you'll pay for an audio book. You won't pay for a serialized podcast, but now you've probably seen Audible are starting to push more and more. Yeah. Pay, effectively paid podcasts, right? You need to be an Audible member to, yeah, yeah. to access them. That's, so there's, there's some I, I, precedent I think, starting yeah, I to think, form there. I think so, but I think that will lead to, you know, maybe a winnowing out of the, the podcast that people are giving away for free. Um, I think it's maybe like blogging was when people discovered that running blogs was actually a really exhausting and painful experience. And I'm sure you... And no one does it anymore. Yeah. And that producing a podcast uh, week in, week out, or many more times a week is hard work, as I'm sure you know much better than me. Yeah. Although actually my wife does a podcast and I've seen it close hand. How much hard work goes into it? Just to produce six episodes. If you're doing 40 or 50 episodes a year, that is a lot of work. But, I, but that supports then the argument that it should be a paid product. Well, no, it supports the argument that... Or it could be a paid product. That for the amount of effort you put in, you want to be paid as the producer. <laughs> but as a user, you think, well, I can get this free. Why am I going to pay? But we've gone back, right back to the point we started, which is news media gave away all their content for free yeah, because yeah. there was a business model that allowed it. That although, business although model then really. broke. <laughs> well, there was the idea that, you know, the growth in advertising... Yeah, it was an idea. Me. It wasn't... Uh, yeah. It didn't turn out that way. Yeah. Well, had... Yes, had... had bigger people not stepped in and kind of destroyed yeah. that, that side of the business. But, but why wouldn't you use the same argument for podcasts then? Why, where... Well, I think it's about the... So, as a producer, you can say this is, you know, this is important uh, content. Ah, cool. This is important content. It costs me a lot to produce. It, it, you should pay for it. Mm-hmm. But people are going to say, well, it has to have value to me that I can't get elsewhere yes. that will make me want to pay for it. They don't care that it took you a lot of effort. They really don't care. I completely agree. So it's getting, you know, there's an overabundance of supply of podcasts. You know, there's podcasts on absolutely everything. In fact, there are, there are more than one podcast on everything. So, But there's a difference between, and it's, surely this is the difference between a blogger and a news media organisation or a consumer magazine. One is... is potentially doing as good a job, but, but oftentimes not quite as good a job. Mm-hmm. And so isn't it actually, if you, if you ignore the format for a second, it's just the difference between quality media and, and kind of homemade yeah, so, media or mass media. Yeah, so in effect, you, you should be able to charge for them. I think you have to get over the, the, the thing that the news business in kind of the written word news business got over, which is having given away for so long, people become reluctant to pay. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. there you go, there's a problem. So, exactly. so you're going to start charging for this podcast? Absolutely then? not. Mine's worthless. But, <laughs> but, but it, I has think, other, it has other... <laughs> but I think, you know, if you look at someone like um, Tortoise, The Economist, yeah. Times and Sunday Times, I, I, I would imagine there is, there's the, there's the content that you give away for free to, as you say, as a kind of audience development tool. There's the content that you only give to members. Yeah. That's a retention tool. Actually, this is a really bad idea to come here halfway through conversation. And then, and then there's potentially the content you license. Yeah. 
yeah. as, a, as another revenue stream. So I think that potentially is an interesting model. Right. So let's end, well not end, but let's draw to a close with what you're up to now. Yes. I know, so when, did, when did you leave Time So I, I left uh, in the summer. Yeah, that's right. Um, and had a very kind of agreeable summer not working. I managed to get abroad, which was um, my sole aim for the summer. I went to Mallorca for a while, which is great. But now oh, I'm back and raring to go. And uh, I'm setting up a consultancy uh, called HBM Advisory right. with um, my former colleague, Michael Brunt, who was general manager of the Times for, for about a year and a half or so. But before that, he would have been, he'd been COO and publisher of The Economist. So between us, we cover you know, the editorial, uh, the, content, it's like the content and the product side and the general yeah. digital strategy yeah. and newsroom transformation and also the business side. So creating new products, uh, working your way through kind of various payable models and so on. So we think by bringing those things together, we can help businesses you know, really align to make the most of their, their content business. And we're saying content business and not just publishing business because we think, well, we know that it's not just publishers who produce content uh, for digital media now, it's, yeah. it's corporates as well. And uh, I think, um, you know, hopefully with our experience in you know, two of the world's leading subscription businesses, news, we can help um, others, whether they be publishers or whether they be kind of corporates looking to push their, cor their, their kind of business. And is it always going to be a boutique small gr group of people or do you have big ambitions well, to turn it into a big we are, consulting firm? We are just beginning. So there's just the two of us to start with. But we think, you know, we think there's an opportunity to grow. Yes, we sure. think, and as, as we've discussed, we think it's a real um, kind of, I wouldn't say turning point, but there's a possibility of real expansion in the, the kind of the paid digital market in particular, but also in the general digital content business. Yeah. Um, you know, there's so many things coming to, you know, there's there's much more data around, there's kind of AI tools or machine learning tools which are gonna help people personalize and customize their content. Yeah. And people are paying more for, for content. So there's a lot of things that I think are gonna move the, the business forward in the next five years or so that publishers, whether they be small publishers as we've discussed or very large publishers. Yeah. Um, I think you're going to be looking to kind of try new things and I think that's where we'll hopefully come in. Do you think you'll be pushing, or not pushing, sorry that's not, that's not right, do you think you'll be working largely with paid content strategies or do you think it's going to be a mix? No, I, I think as the business is, um, you know, has a mixed model, so we will, we will work with anyone who, yeah. who, who kind of feels we can offer, offer them um, kind of valuable advice. Are there any brands you're allowed to tell us about who you might be working with? Uh, we're very early days. We're, as, as we speak, we haven't launched our website yet, um, but we, have, we are talking to a few people. I, I can't at the moment say who they are. Oh, okay. But, Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> I can't give you that Interesting. speech. Well, good luck. Thank you very much. And thanks for coming and walking with me. It was really good well, fun. No, thank you for coming to, to Alexandra Palace, I which uh, I love showing people around. With the wonderful views. Yes, indeed. Oh, cheers. Cheers. Okay, so that's it for now. Thanks again to Alan for being so generous with his time. And as always, if you've got any suggestions on who you'd like me to walk and talk with, or if you have any feedback at all, please just give me a shout. I'd love to hear from you. And if you could subscribe, uh, tell your friends, 
share this with your family and colleagues, that would be amazing too. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.